Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Hi, everyone. My name is Marian Albert. I'm a senior attorney at Lawyers for Civil Rights. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this urgent discussion addressing the unprecedented surge of asylum seekers and migrants arriving to Massachusetts. Our conversation today will delve deeply into the multifaceted responses from the state, municipalities, and legal and social services organizations. We will discuss the critical need for comprehensive solutions to address this pressing issue, and we hope to provide you with insight on the current immigration landscape here in Massachusetts, and also maybe some takeaways on what you should keep in mind regarding immigration, particularly as we approach the 2024 election. Um, As mentioned, there is a Q&A box at the the bottom of your screen. Please submit any questions as we move along, but we will start addressing them towards the end of the panel. Uh, So now I will introduce our wonderful speakers. Uh, Today we have Sarah, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced this, Alar. Uh, she serves as a as a staff attorney at Pair, uh, and she specializes in asylum law. She co- she currently holds the position of co-chair with the BBA's Immigration Steering Committee, and recently she played a pivotal role in the state's endeavor of spearheading uh, the first ever employment authorization clinic. We'll delve deeper into that accomplishment during our panel discussion. So thank you, Sarah. Uh, we also have uh, Monique Tu Nguyen, and she is the executive director of the Mayor's Office for Immigrant Advancement, or MOYA. She leads the department to advance stability, economic empowerment, civic ownership, and social integration for immigrants in Boston. She is committed to advocating for immigrants in Boston and building community to further equity and belonging. Thank you, Monique. Um, And last, we have my colleague, Jacob Love. He is a staff attorney at Lawyers for Civil Rights. In this role, uh, Jake has developed cutting edge litigation across a wide range of civil rights issues. Most recently, he filed two major lawsuits, one to enforce the MBTA uh, community zoning law and to preserve the Massachusetts landmark right to shelter law, which we will also be discussing today. And he is also litigating um, LCR's groundbreaking case on behalf of the Martha's Vineyard migrant. So thank you, Jake, also for joining us. Uh, so I'll start with Jake. Uh, Jake, can you walk us through some of the basics? What exactly is the Massachusetts right to shelter law? Who is eligible? Yeah, so the Massachusetts right to shelter law is a very unique law in the United States. It was passed in the 80s during the Dukakis administration. It's been in effect for a long time without any real major changes. The right to shelter law is a little bit of a misnomer because it doesn't guarantee shelter to everyone in Massachusetts, but it does guarantee shelter to women who are pregnant and families with children. Um, And so obviously that's really important right now as a lot of the immigrants who are coming into Massachusetts uh, are pregnant women and women with children. Um, and, uh, I can also talk about the changes that the governor put in, uh, proposed, Marianne, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. That was going to be my, my next, uh, question. Uh, so like Jake was pointing out, um, 
due to the, the recent surge of migrants to the state um, in early August, Governor Healy had declared the state of emergency since they had seen an 80% increase, right, in, in the emergency service. But yeah, go ahead, Joy. Can you talk about what happened uh, after that point and then um, talk about how the, the law has impacted newly arrived migrants? Yeah, so um, in the late fall, um, after the governor declared a state of emergency due to the incoming migrants to Massachusetts, uh, the governor announced some major changes to the right to shelter law. Um, basically, they the state imposed a cap on the number of units in the shelter system. Previously, um, as need had for shelter had increased in Massachusetts, the state, the legislature, the governor had all coordinated a response uh, and they had been adding units to the shelter system as needed to meet demand. Um, and in the late fall, we had far surpassed um, the amount of beds that the, the traditional shelters had available to them. So the state was essentially contracting with hotels to provide more room for the migrants that were incoming, um, but without providing really any notice to any stakeholders, um, shelters, legal providers, advocates, the state decided that they were going to they were going to stop adding units, even though demand was continuing to increase from incoming migrants and from residents of Massachusetts who are becoming homeless due to the uh, the housing crisis that we're facing right now, um, the governor said, we're going to stop adding units and we're going to put those folks on a waiting list. Um, and that's going to happen imminently. Um, so obviously a lot of advocates were really concerned about this um, because with winter coming, um, if folks were put on a waiting list and not put into shelter immediately, that means pregnant women and women, women with children were going to be left out on the street. Um, and so shortly after the governor announced that plan, uh, to cap the shelter system, we filed a lawsuit in Suffolk County Superior Court, um, making two main arguments. One, that the state had failed to follow the Administrative Procedure Act, which requires the state to um, allow for a notice and comment period on these types of regulatory changes before they go into effect. Uh, and also the state had violated a provision in the a line item provision in the budget that required the governor to tell uh, various committees in the legislature before they made changes like this. Um, so that went to an emergency hearing relatively quickly. quickly. Um, our, we, we were asking for injunctive relief uh, for the court to stop the state from imposing these changes until they had followed the, the Administrative Procedure Act's regulatory processes. Um, the court denied our requested relief on an emergency basis, um, but we're we're thankful and grateful that we created a conversation with that lawsuit. The governor started um, uh, communicating more openly and transparently with the legislature, and they were able to pass a supplementary budget relatively quickly, infusing $250 million into the emergency shelter system. Um, but the cap is still in place, unfortunately, um, and winter is here, and there are a lot of people on a waiting list, so it's an ongoing problem. Are there any next steps that, you know, LCR or other uh, organizations are taking to deal with the situation at hand? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of good steps available to us at this point. Like I said, the traditional shelter system is already overwhelmed. There are a lot of community organizations, a lot of faith-based organizations, churches, uh, things like that, um, that are coming together and offering space um, for migrants and other people in Massachusetts who don't have anywhere to go. 
Um, but as of right now, there, there aren't really a lot of good options. The state is basically saying that they're out of money uh, and they're asking for the federal government to step in and help them with federal funds. Um, but given the lack of coordination and, and general chaos at the, at the federal level, um, that's that's really not a great option either. Um, but a lot of advocacy organizations are continuing to put pressure on the Healy administration and the legislature to, to take, state, take steps to fix this problem. But I think it's I think it's going to be a longer term issue, especially because and this is also something that you mentioned that I'm working on, which is the housing crisis in Massachusetts, uh, which is really contributing to this because it's not just the migrants uh, that are seeking shelter. A lot of people are getting forced out of their homes. Uh, a lot of longtime Massachusetts residents are getting forced out of their homes because housing is just too expensive right now. So um, it's a lot of problems coming together uh, at the moment, which is which is really putting pressure on the shelter system. Thank you, Jake. But it is great to hear that that lawsuit, at least like you said, opened up the conversation and had good uh, results, even if it was outside of the lawsuit. Um, so I also just wanted to discuss uh, some of the impetus of this panel was to discuss a larger trend that we've been seeing in the last few years, where we've seen, um, you know, different state governors like the tech, uh, Texas governor and Florida governor uh, transport uh, migrants across state lines, whether that be through busing or, as you mentioned, um, you know, when Ron DeSantis flew 50 migrants to uh, Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and could you talk a little bit about that and some of the, the narrative around that? Yeah, so uh, I think most folks uh, attending this panel have probably seen it in the news, um, but the governors of Texas and Florida uh, and Arizona and other states, which um, are near the border and obviously have a, the largest influx of migrants, um, have been instituting state-run policies whereby they are seeking out uh, migrants who are in shelters in Texas and, and other southern states and offering them free transportation to northern states. Um, and the, in the case of our Martha's Vineyard lawsuit, uh, Governor DeSantis and uh, his fellow conspirators um, essentially transported the, the, the migrants to Martha's Vineyard under false pretenses. Um, but there are larger scale busing um, busing programs in effect where whereby they're just telling people we're going to give you a free bus ticket to New York City, take it or leave it. Um, and a lot of people uh, know that the migrant communities uh, in the north are large, and so they're taking those opportunities. Uh, they also have been told by friends and family uh, or others that the the um, public safety, the the public infrastructure is better here. That the there are more options for them. That there's a bigger safety net, and so. A lot of people are coming um, and the infrastructure here just uh, and especially in Massachusetts just just basically isn't big enough. Uh, the shelter system wasn't anticipating an influx of people this large. Um, and the governors, I think, who are running these kinds of programs anticipated that they knew that that was going to happen. Uh, and they're doing this to create a political wedge issue. They're they're using human beings um, and they're sending them to the Northeast uh, for whether that they're not prepared for to make political points. Uh, and so that's obviously exacerbating the issues that we're facing. Yeah, thank you, Jake, for that. I don't know if Sarah or Monique want to add to any of those points. If not, then we can move on. Okay, so I, uh, Sarah, um, I was as I was talking about earlier, 
a lot of the media attention around this issue has been focused on municipal efforts. Uh, for example, a city here, a city there, Chicago, New York have been some of the cities mentioned, Denver and um, Boston as well. Uh, but what has been the response of the state here in Massachusetts and what role should the state play in this issue? Thank you. Um, thank you, Marion, for the opportunity to be here today. Um, I, I do want to say from the outset that I don't work for the state. Um, I work for a nonprofit organization that specializes in asylum law um, and removal defense. Um, but I, I did work very closely with the state on the effort to hold a two-week um, clinic for migrants and shelter to be able to apply for their work permits. Um, I think, you know, this um, state effort, as uh, Miriam mentioned, was is unique. A lot of the other um, sort of pilot programs that the federal government has been working on have been um, mostly managed with different cities. Um, so this was unique in that um, it was the state that was sort of helping to open some some doors to make this possible. The state was instrumental in, you know, in finding location for the clinic to be held in helping to get the um, shelter residents to the location. Um, so the state has definitely taken a large um, stance of, you know, played a big role in sort of making the work permit clinic happen. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, the best way to get individuals out of shelter is for them to be able to provide for themselves as they desperately want to do. Um, you know, I, I think that having the federal government there um, present, so the actually the immigration um, services that adjudicates these work permit applications was present on site, they were able to um, receipt in the applications almost immediately, and they were able to take uh, biometrics, to take fingerprints and photos, which was absolutely incredible. Um, and having that sort of uh, cooperation with, you know, the state and the feds really made it possible for these work permits to be adjudicated quickly. Um, it prevented so many migrants from having to, you know, try to then figure out where their biometrics appointment is and in a month go to that. Um, so being able to really take care of so many of the basic problems on site was really a really spectacular um, undertaking. So I definitely, you know, the state did a fantastic job in supporting the local legal services. Um, I think one of the biggest struggles right now for a lot of the migrants in um, shelter is that, you know, there are some, some shelters do have caseworkers, some shelters are, you know, um, as Jake was mentioning, the more of the hotel styles, they don't have a system set up to, to do sort of larger scale case management. Um, there have been some legal services that have tried to step up and fill in the gaps, but it's just really hard and it all happened very quickly. Um, so, you know, I think legal services in general is still trying to figure out the best way to help all of these individuals. Um, hopefully, you know, the clinic was, oh my gosh, it feels like it was just last week, but I think it was almost two months ago. And, um, and so hopefully by now, a lot of those migrants have their work permits. Um, at the event, there were other state agencies present, such as Mass MassHire, um, and they were able to really connect with some of the migrants who 
are going to hopefully have work authorization soon. So I'm I'm hopeful that, you know, everybody who is eligible and able to work is um, hopefully going to get out there and um, and do what they want, which is to work legally. Um, I think the sort of future needs are going to include more um, more intensive immigration legal services. Um, a lot of these individuals are eligible for different forms of relief that may allow them to stay in the United States. Um, and it's just going to be a, a long road to help all of those individuals figure out what their options are um, and hopefully connect them with services around the state. Yeah, no, that, thank you, Sarah. I was, well, I volunteered three times and I was really happy to do it because I was truly amazed as to how quickly it happened and how well organized it happened. Um, even though I know that some things like people were figuring out as it went, um, I thought it was it was excellent. I, I think it was a, a, a great job. Um, can you talk a little bit also about the folks you were serving, maybe like the demographics or some of the stories that they might have shared? Yeah, um, I think, you know, the the main population that we are seeing uh, migrants in shelter are Haitian. Um, Haiti was Boston was a huge destination for a lot of Haitians coming across the southern border. I think it was either the first or second destination named by Haitians when they were crossing. Um, so un, unsurprisingly, we have a, a lot of Haitians in um in shelter right now. So mm, I would say probably 90% of the individuals that we saw that day were Haitian. Um, but we also saw other nationalities, some Central Americans, we saw some Peruvians, some Ecuadorians. Um, so, you know, the the idea was that there was some pre-screening done within the shelter site. So people who were coming were already identified as being eligible for the services. So I don't know if there's a bigger you know, Colombian population that just wasn't eligible for work permits because of how they entered or different, you know, legal regulations. Um, but the people that we saw at the clinic were primarily Haitian um, and lots of families. The state actually set up a flu and COVID vaccination station. So hopefully we'll be able to prevent some um, some sickness. I'm, I can't imagine coming from a Caribbean background and then ending up in Boston these days. I think I would get the flu the second I stood off the plane. Um, so I think in that sense, you know, people are, were very grateful for the services. I, I mean, you, there's no, working with a migrant population is, you will, you will rarely meet people who are more grateful for your help. Even if you're just orienting them, you're not actually helping them. You're just giving them some information. Um, to them, that's that's life-changing. You know, sitting down and taking a few minutes to talk to individuals. You know, I did try to to triage some cases that I saw as being very complicated and trying to connect them to legal services. But as many of us know, legal services are extraordinarily overextended um, and over capacity. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll also be able to get interest among private attorneys who would like to take the cases, you know, low bono. I understand that nobody can can do anything for, for free right now, but um, a low bono model would be really ideal. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, and definitely agree about the, the weather change. I just came from LA and I'm super shocked to even be here now. <laughs> um, but but thank you, Sarah. 
Um, I, I know you kind of already touched on some of these points, but do you, how do you think that this, these clinics could be improved? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some lessons learned from this experience that you just had. So the biggest lesson learned that I took away and that I shared with um, other, you know, um, organizations that are doing similar projects in um, Denver and Chicago um, is that to really to push back a little bit um, on the Fed timeline. The Feds wanted it yesterday um, and planning a clinic of that size and scale is just not possible in the two weeks that we had. So um, I would just really recommend that, um, you know, if the the feds say, oh, we want to do it next week. No, it's just worth it to be a little bit more organized, have a little bit more time um, that, you know, to, to understand who the different players are and to understand the population that you're serving um, to really be able to provide the service. Um, That being said, the fact that immigration was on site helping out, receiving the applications, giving them receipts, doing fingerprints. They even did fingerprints on cases that had been like problem cases that had been pending for a while and stuff like that. So having them there was such a benefit that if the feds had said, okay, you can do the clinic whenever you want, but we won't be there, then no, (laughs) then I would do it fast. (laughs) But my biggest um, sort of takeaway is that a little bit more time to plan um, would have made things go smoother, um, especially at the beginning of the, of the week (laughs) of week one. Yeah, no, I I definitely want to give you and all the attorneys and people involved your flowers because it was truly, like I said, amazing to see how all of this came to be. And like you said, I know that there was changes done along the way. You guys were like evolving as things came up, Uh, but you guys were like doing it so quickly and got, you know, you had your systems in place very, very well. So, yeah. Thank you so much for that, Sarah. It was, you know, it was a huge success Um, over the course of the two weeks. We um, over, I think it was almost 1,200 people got their biometrics taken and over a thousand applications, first time applications were filed. So, you know, it was definitely a huge success, a large uh, learning curve, (laughs) but, um, but, you know, it was, it was a pleasure to do. And and we have to just thank all the attorneys, especially the attorneys from the Boston bar that came and volunteered um, throughout those crazy two weeks. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Now, now I'll move to Monique. Uh, Monique, localities and municipalities have been at the front lines of um, dealing with uh, issues that have arisen uh, due to the influx of recently arrived migrants to different cities, including here in Boston. Can you touch on what you're seeing at the local level here in Boston, how the city or Moya is responding? Sure. Um, I think for the city, we were already facing a housing shortage already before the new migrants came in. Uh, I think many decades of not for planning ahead of an, enough around the, the growth of a city to accommodate the existing population, also the future of Boston has put us in this situation, also the state level, um, that the city had to really think about what is our our sandbox in regards to our our, our area of responsibility you know, and coordinating with other players like the state and the federal government and doing a lot of advocacy 
work to even line even the issue around EADs. People, we have shelters inside the city, for example, that we run that are not state run, that um, there are new migrants come in, but the existing population coming out of COVID of citizens and people were already even coming in already. And then how do we... Um, how do we train up and help people exit the shelter? So they're not in the shelter system so they can open up space for anyone who really needs it at the time, but not stuck there because of administration issues around EADs, for example. So I think even aligning in the field um, and doing advocacy, that was our, our biggest um, uh, effort. Um, even in Moya for the Mayor's Office Immigrant Advancement, we saw EADs uh, as the biggest barrier for even moving people out of of that, that pipeline, a pathway for them to get on their feet. So identifying that across nationally with Cities for Action, working with state and city um, uh, attorneys and advocates to even push for that, that caused for the USAS to come down and be more proactive being like, how could we get this done? I'm like, and we knew that then in past history, they were able to um, do these separate efforts where EEDs that would take months to get um, approved uh, I learned that from that clinic, one person got it the following week, right? So that was, as, things are possible as long as we coordinate and put the resources where at, there's just at the right time, you know? I think um, us all calling, kind of scrambling in our own direction uh, and just not helping uh, correct the system has caused for more chaos. So from the city level, we've been doing a lot of triaging of um, individuals coming in and also coordinating with the field. Um, we also, as a city, has been trying to also offer resources to the field to innovate during these time periods to adjust to supporting new migrants. So for example, that something that we're piloting right now is working with faith institutions um, and a community-based organization to run a shelter out in the church, for example. We're piloting that with Bethel Ime and uh, IFSI, the organization. And we, as a city, um, uh, funded that as part of, um, of money that we already had around um, supporting new migrants as an experiment to see this can be more cost-effective measure in comparison to hotels or or uh, people on the street, and it's more cost-effective. So we're hoping that model will um, be successful and we can help the state um, implement that on a larger level. Yeah, thank you, Monique. Um, and then based on some of those examples that you gave us, do you think that, where do you think that there's room for improvement in regards to the city's efforts? Um, I think the room's improvement for us to coordinate. I think it's, it's a con continuing effort for us to coordinate who can do the work, helping build capacity for um, nonprofits that are doing the work now because they are experts in the, in the field, you know, but helping uh, whether it be capacity building, uh, resourcing, or even coordinating or advocacy on behalf of um, groups on this state level. Because I feel like as governmental agencies, we have a closer ear and responsibility to work with other governmental agencies. So I feel that that could be our biggest value added to this. So we can become stronger in our advocacy and talking and resourcing the field and coordinating with the field. Yeah, thank you. Um, my next question is one thing that we've, at least at LCR that we've seen is that many of the clients we work with who um, have immigration issues uh, often have gone through various levels of interactions with the government, right? Border patrol officers and, you know, again, a, a various amount of different um, immigration officers. Um, and it, through that process, there's often 
inconsistencies and sometimes even negligence right from those people. So that sometimes trickles down to people that we work with, right? Like once they arrive in Boston, is there something that the city of Boston or Moya is doing around trying to bridge that gap, making sure that people have correct information and that are continuing to learn about their immigration process um, and other issues like that? Yes, um, we learned that, you know, whenever migrants were able to get to the city of Boston, we did learn about the different um, junctures that they came along where they're mistreated and they're and they just lost. Um, it's either they lost key, key documents that were critical for their cases or mistreated or harmed that they can't trust any governmental or even nonprofit actor anymore. Um, that we were able to think about attract like their steps back and where there was and identify that um, there were certain ports of entry that there were problems with, or even a shelter that were processing very quickly. So we were even able to talk to their teams there and being like, how could we support even giving them materials ahead of time for them to even make a, a informed decision about coming to Boston, you know, for example, because oftentimes, um, um, a lot of their hopes are squashed when they realize they weren't giving full information about Boston, how cold it was, how expensive it is, how hard it is here, you know, that we were able to coordinate materials for like um, for the Southern um, nonprofits that were working with the groups um, that were processing people across the border and even people that would uh, the secondary stop was in Florida, for example, there were groups in Florida that were um, taking folks from the, that were receiving folks from Florida from the border as well. So just trying to be um, proactive in providing materials and supporting the, the teams that are at the border and different states were on their upward travel to to uh, to Boston. Thank you, Monique. And this next question, I, I leave it up both to Monique and Sarah or Jake. Um, one thing that Monique was pointing at or discussing right now, too, is the fact that migrants experience so many levels of trauma as they come to the U.S. and then come to specifically Boston. And um, I know that this conversation has focused a lot on the need for you know, employment authorization documents, but also housing, um, all of which are super important. Uh, but one thing that often gets left behind is the fact that, you know, mental health services are also needed um, and there's always a gap there. Um, do you think that 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 there's I guess like what is currently in place as these issues are continuing to rise and what can be done if it's not being done already? I, I could start. Uh, and just talk a little bit about this. Um, I, I think Sarah mentioned this um, when she was talking about a lot of the traditional shelters in Massachusetts have really a wide variety of services that they provide uh, to their residents. Um, they help them with, with employment training. They help them get um, out of out of credit card debt and other kinds of debt. They help them with housing search and placement. Uh, and in some cases, they they uh, can help set people up with social workers. Um, that's not necessarily direct mental health services, but it's at least closer than what a lot of people have now. Um, but because of the the just volume of people that are that are coming into the system, um, their people aren't being placed in those traditional shelters. They're being placed in hotels. And again, as I think Sarah mentioned, they're just they're not being provided with caseworkers of any kind. They're just being placed in in the hotel and then they're told basically fend for yourself. Um, we're going to make sure that the, the bill gets paid to the hotel, uh, but 
you have until X date to get out um, and you know figure it out essentially. Um, so that's that's a big big problem that these sort of like people are being placed in shelter, but they're not getting the secondary services that they need to get out of shelter. So that's a big problem and a big focus I think for the state going forward. Something I want to name around um, mental health, um, there isn't something that's existing targeted specifically for new migrants, but Moya's approach is trying to um, bolster the existing system of uh, community-driven community uh, immigrant um, uh, mental wellness for the event that we can integrate the new arrivals into, and also training all of our staff um, that do work with new migrants and also the grantees that we work with that are taking on new migrants um, uh, projects for them to be also trained up for like mental health, uh, mental, um, mental health first aid. So that's an example for us to kind of like think about more lower level ways that we can support uh, mental health and well-being as people transition into living in Boston. Because um, even for the existing population, there's a shortage of uh, therapists, counselors for individual one-to-one -one time. And also for immigrants in general, there's been a long time like stigma around getting mental health services one-to-one. -one. So we're trying to drive more immigrant-driven group-based, um, community-based, like um, like folk uh, listening groups or like support groups, that type of thing. So we're trying to bolster more of that type of activity around mental health. Um, we have a, a grant that we put out for the last Three or four, uh, three years now, called weaving well-being, where we we try to promote more um, immigrant-led, immigrant-driven, um, uh, non-clinical approaches to uh, mental health and wellness. And the next cohort, we're hoping to welcome new um, new projects that help with new migrants. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure I can add anything. Um to to those comments which I, I think were perfect um with you know keeping in mind of course that for a lot of the individuals in question they the most most of the people that I've spoken with um sort of mental health concerns are on the back burner they really they want to work they need um you know their biggest stressor is not being able to work um so I think you know that is falls under sort of like the next level or layer of care that people will need, you know, in, in addition to sort of longer term immigration support for their immigration cases, they're going to need uh, mental health support. They're going to the kids are going to need help um, at school, maybe learning to um, speak English or maybe, you know, interrupted education while people are on their migration journeys, um, uh, you know, is something that we'll we'll see and we'll need to, you know, be aware of and, and support these families um, for a while. Yeah, thank you, everyone. That was great. Um, and it's great to see all the efforts that Moya is doing, because that sounds spectacular. Um, I'm, I'm really interested to see how that, you know, plays out. Um, so I guess we'll be on the lookout for that. Um, this is also another question for all three of you. Um, so um, I want to talk about like, the narrative, again, the narrative that is being driven a lot of times by the media around uh, the influx of uh, recently arrived migrants to various cities, most of the time that often tends to be a negative portrayal. Um, so I guess like, how do we talk about this issue um, where we talk about the reality and you know make sure that people don't conflate that depiction with the reality? 
I think that's huge and it's a it's a really big problem. Um, I think a, a lot of what I've been hearing is, you know, comments about how, well, you know, why do these migrants get to go into shelter when, um, you know, I have a U.S. citizen neighbor who needs to go into shelter. And that is true. And the need for shelter is huge. Um, and it, it's just it's tough to uh, try to explain that you know, in, in my opinion, um, human lives are human lives and, and you don't necessarily, um, you know, people's worth is independent of their immigration status and is independent of their housing status. You know, um, many of us are just a few medical mistakes away from, from being in a similar situation. Um, so I think it's important to just sort of I try to pull back and say, well, let's look at the big picture here, because the migrants aren't the ones to blame. The people who are needing housing aren't the ones to blame. It's the systems and the lack of support. So like, let's that's that's how I try to manage those uh, comments personally. We do similar inside Moya too. We often do triage a lot of like complaints from people who are in dire straits. And then I think a, a narrative um, tactic in the past that the media and also the people who are anti-immigrant that do feed it is like this um, oppression Olympics, right? So um, oftentimes I'm able to neutralize people's of like, why can't, why, why do I, they get it? And why don't I get it? I'm like, what do you need? Like so oftentimes people are also like having need to put out a cry that they even have need for their own life, but oftentimes they don't get hurt. So I try to um, do that with our team too. It's like, okay, how can we help you too? You are a resident here. We can tend to you and also the new migrants too as new migrants. Um, and the city has been built on migration. You know, we try to say that this has been a thing for the beginning of time establishment, establishing the boss, this Boston we do know today. So for them being like, oh yeah, my immigrant parents were Italians and they did come through the 19 did it. So like even the helping having like conversational um, approach is supportive too. Um, I'll oftentimes, especially in, you'll see this in election year, they try to pit community members and one another to be very combative, right? So how do we also have a counter way to, for us to engage, uh, to talk about migration and to honor everyone's needs and fight for the system change that we need, need for everybody, you know? So that's how, um, we're, how we're approaching it as, as a department. Um, yeah, and I think one other way to think about this and talk about it and reframe the issue is uh, a failure of government. Um, the issues that folks are facing in Massachusetts and throughout the rest of the country isn't the fault of the immigrants who are coming here. It's the failure of the state and federal government to effectively deal with the problem. At the federal level, uh, immigration reform has just been totally neglected for years and years. I think everybody acknowledges that it's something that needs to be addressed uh, comprehensively uh, and through federal legislation. Uh, and it just hasn't happened in years at the state level. Uh, Massachusetts um, has allowed the housing crisis to get worse and worse steadily over time, which has been a complete and total abdication of of several administrations uh, for the last 20 years. We just are not building enough housing uh, to house the number of people that are coming into the state, let alone the migrants. Uh, and so I think I think really what's happening here is that the influx of migrants is really um, exacerbating a lot of the problems that already existed uh, and just making it much more clear that government has not been effectively dealing with a lot of these issues. Uh, and so I think we should point 
to that fact when people say, oh, migrants this, migrants that. Well, a lot of these issues that we're facing already exist before the migrants, and they're just making it more clear what the problems are. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Definitely true. Migration, it's always a great reminder for everyone that migration has always been here. It's not new and it will continue to happen. No one can stop it. Right. So um, and like Jake said, um, you know, it's great to we have to hold our government accountable. Um, they can't you know, now that it's right in their face, they can't ignore it. Um, so my last question for everyone before we open it up for Q&A is uh, how can people get involved and help? Um, whether it be in your organization or in different places or, or uh, different actions, but if you could share some of those ideas. Um, for our office, we do offer, um, we do need uh, helping hands throughout the year. Um, and uh, if you sign up for a newsletter, we do uh, have a call for volunteers for different things from dedicated dockets, legal access clinics, to even service days. We're doing clothing drive right now. And even sometimes we'll even have um, advocacy uh, call to actions too. So if you sign up for our newsletter on our Boston.gov website, boston.gov backslash immigrants, um, you can sign up for our newsletter and then you can have volunteer and advocacy opportunities. Yeah, um, legal services is always looking for volunteers, um, you know, mostly attorney volunteers, anybody with immigration experience is Fantastic, but there's also a lot of opportunities for individuals who don't have a lot of immigration experience and are interested in um, providing a helping hand. Um, you could definitely check out um, PEAR's website, pairproject.org. Um, and I would say to just to stay involved, to stay involved, to stay knowledgeable and to help, you know, every time that you sit down with somebody who's, you know, involved in migrant bashing and say, hey, well, think about it this way or the other way, you know, that is help too. So there's uh, many different ways to be an active uh, citizen. And similar to what other folks have mentioned, Lawyers for Civil Rights does a ton of know your rights trainings. So if you're involved with a community organization um, and would like to um, engage with us and, and have us come out and talk through these issues with members of the community, we're always happy to do that. Um, and then just in terms of your own advocacy, I think calling your representatives um, and, and making sure that they know that this is an important issue for you uh, and something that they should be working on, uh, because um, I think um, a lot of uh, representatives sort of just, you know, are, are given a pass because they don't they're not being forced to speak on this or answer to their constituents. And it's uh, it's something that I think um, people can do in their free time to be uh, effective advocates. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, everyone. Um, now I'll open it up for Q&A if there are any questions. If not, I don't think there are any questions. Um, so, I mean, I guess everyone's questions were answered. Um, it, yeah, thank you so much for everyone, for all our viewers and our speakers. I guess we can conclude our panel. Um, it's been incredible to see how different localities and service providers are really driving innovation to ensure that newly arrived migrants are receiving all the tools that they need. Um, obviously, there's a lot of improvements that can be made, but it's incredible to see the efforts that are already being taken.